Right now, there is a very tense situation developing along the border between Russia and Ukraine that has some people questioning whether Russia is considering going to war. What we've learned at The Washington Post is that based on U.S. intelligence, officials believe that Russia has plans to put in place as many as 175,000 military personnel, which would essentially give Vladimir Putin the ability to invade Ukraine at the moment that he chooses. Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security for The Post. What our sources have told us and U.S. officials have said publicly is that they don't know for sure if Putin plans to invade. But what you see him doing right now is putting in place all of the hardware, the artillery, uh, the military equipment, the supply lines, the medical support, everything that he would need to move those troops quickly across the border. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, December 7th. Today, we're talking about the limitations of American diplomacy, how the U.S. government is responding to this Russian threat against Ukraine, and later in the show, the diplomatic boycott of the Olympics in China. In the days since this news came out about these Russian troops amassed at the border with Ukraine, there has been this big question of what is the U.S. going to do about it? And today, President Biden got on a call with Russian President Vladimir Putin. In a readout of that call, the White House said that Biden voiced deep concerns about the escalation from Russia. And he made it clear that the U.S. and our allies would, quote, respond with strong economic and other measures in the event of military escalation. But there's a question of how much that really matters to Putin and if pulling on those levers will be enough to deter him from what he wants to do in Ukraine. Because, as Shane explains, he wants to do this for all these deeply entrenched and historic reasons. One is that he and I think people around him in power see Ukraine as Russian. It's a former Soviet republic. Many parts of it and many people there culturally identify more perhaps with Russia than with the West. There's a shared history. So there's a sense in which I think he would like to bring this territory back under Russian influence. The other is that Putin looks for opportunities to test and to aggravate Western alliances, um, whether they be the NATO alliance. Ukraine is not a member of NATO, but the government in Kyiv is more closely aligned with Washington than it is with Moscow right now. And the country is drifting more in towards a Western orbit. So anything that Putin can do to test the resolve of the United States and European allies to come to the defense of Ukraine uh, and put kind of their own skin in the game, He's willing to do that. He likes to drive wedges where he can find it. What is the evidence that has told U.S. intelligence that this is what is happening on the border of Russia and Ukraine? What we have seen the most of and what what we've reported are satellite images that show key points along the eastern border of Ukraine, also points at the north and further south that show troop buildups. You can actually see these satellite photographs of kind of like before and after pictures where you can see more personnel coming in, more tanks and artillery coming in. The most recent imagery came from around mid to late November. And what this shows is kind of this consistent pattern of the buildup. Also, this movement of equipment to the border, to the front. Important to note here as well that Ukrainian officials are seeing the same thing from their sources. Mm-hmm. We also understand there is other intelligence kind of support 
supporting this that we haven't seen that is leading U.S. officials to conclude that what Putin is doing here is military planning for the potential invasion of Ukraine. I think we can suspect that that's probably involves things like communications intercepts uh, and stuff that is, frankly, a lot more sensitive than even satellite imagery. What was your reaction to seeing these satellite images and hearing from people in the intelligence community essentially saying that Putin is preparing for war? It was pretty alarming. I mean, we've seen this buildup coming. We've also seen a buildup before. We've seen Russia do military drills, notably last spring, uh, where there was a tense situation that had a lot of officials uh, in the U.S. and in Europe wondering what Putin was up to. But what was alarming here, and this was preceded by some public comments as well from administration officials, is that they were really pointing out, look, this looks like he is on the precipice of war. Uh, And so the warnings became very stark. And some of them were quite public. So that, when we heard that and saw the information that was backing it up, I think we understood better why U.S. officials have had so much concern and why people like Secretary of State Tony Blinken had been kind of publicly warning the Russians, like, we see what you're doing here on the border. Don't think about this. Like, don't do this. To then kind of see the evidence that was underneath it, I think, just kind of put a fine point on it. So then what is President Biden supposed to do about this? Like he is seeing the same intelligence about how much of an escalation we're seeing on this border. What is the U.S. response? Here, I think we are almost certainly talking about, if not exclusively, largely economic sanctions and retaliations. There's not a universe, I think, in which we imagine the United States going to war with Russia over Ukraine. Vladimir Putin knows that, and that is a part of his calculation. It's also hard to imagine European countries committing their own troops on the ground to go fight for Ukraine. But the United States could, and I suspect that President Biden will make this more explicit in his conversations with Vladimir Putin, levy very tough economic sanctions against prominent wealthy people in Russia, including people who are major supporters of President Putin. Uh, Some officials I've talked to have speculated even about not just freezing their money, but about kicking out children of theirs who were studying in the United States or finding Mm -hmm. European countries where they're serving. The most extreme option on the table would be to isolate Russia from the international financial system by kicking it off of an international network known as SWIFT, which is a banking system that's based in Belgium and is kind of, you can think of it like the circulatory system of global money. That would almost be like a financial blockade, and Russia would view that as, I think, something kind of approximating an act of aggression. But how much would those measures actually be any sort of deterrent to Russia and to Putin? I mean, when compared to the prospect of actually invading another country, it seems like kicking out the kids of some of these, you know, Russian like high up people and stopping them from using this banking system feels kind of small scale. Yeah, you're asking the fundamental question here, which is that what will actually deter Vladimir Putin? And another way of trying to answer that question, which officials have been trying to do, is to say, like, what is his real aim here? What is his intention? Does he truly want to expand if we want to think about the Russian empire, to include going back and taking portions of Ukraine, which I think Putin and others around him see as properly Russian. They feel that people in Ukraine identify as Russian. I think polls uh, that have been taken to Ukraine would, would offer some counter evidence to that. Ukraine is a sovereign country, but that is one that's been very much tilting towards a Western orbit. 
Uh, is that what Putin is about here, trying to stop that? Uh, is it really more a question of his personal self-defense? Does he see a possible admission of Ukraine into NATO or Western military support in Ukraine as threatening him along the Western border of his country? So how far is he willing to go and what is he really after here? If the wager is, if the guess is that what he's trying to do is not so much start a war, but to get concessions from the United States and from Europe, then the question is really how far are we willing to go to kind of accommodate him? I do think that, you know, you're right that, you know, we sanctioned lots and lots of Russians, and we've done it many, many times. We did it after Mm -hmm. 2014, the invasion of Crimea. We did it after the 2016 election interference. And I think some people say, look, is this really working? Because it's not stopping him from massing troops along the border. Mm -hmm. Kicking them off of SWIFT would be a very big deal. But maybe that's a price that Vladimir Putin is willing to pay. And I think we just don't know the answer to that yet. Has Putin confirmed what we've heard from these reports and basically said, yes, we actually are planning a multi-front offensive with with 175,000 troops? No, he has not done that. And I think he regards and publicly regards these reports as very fanciful uh, and just kind of is dismissive of it. I mean, he's not hiding the fact that there are troops there. It's, It's undeniable from the imagery. But he has not publicly stated that those are his intentions at the same time. I mean, he's been very clear with what it is that he wants from Europe and the United States. And that is primarily guarantees from the U.S. and its partners that Ukraine will never be admitted to NATO. And he wants the U.S. to go even further and limit its military activities in Ukraine and support of Ukraine. And what have Ukrainian leaders said about this and the fact that it appears they are under threat? Ukrainian leaders have been really aggressive in getting out there and saying a couple of things. One, that they are fully prepared to defend themselves from a Russian invasion, we should note that the Ukrainian military is stronger and more formidable and more credible than it was in 2014 when Russia went in and annexed Crimea in the south of the country. That Mm -hmm. does not mean that this would be an easy fight. I think the casualties would be very high on both sides, but Ukraine can put up more of a fight now, and they're prepared to defend themselves. You mentioned the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and how there are echoes of that in what we're seeing Putin seemingly approaching doing now. Tell me a little bit more about that conflict, the roots of it, and also how the U.S. responded to that, because President Biden was vice president at the time. And I wonder if there's something we can learn about how Biden is going to approach this conflict from how he approached that one. Well, Putin and a lot of people around him, and I think a lot of people in power in Russia, have long seen Ukraine, which was a a republic in the Soviet Union, as Russian, as ethnically Russian, culturally Russian. There's a kind of shared identity, history, language that is there. Mm -hmm. So the annexation of Crimea in 2014, I think, was seen as kind of a part of a longer-term ambition that Putin has had to bring Ukraine back home to Russia, if you want to think Mm -hmm. of it that way. The Crimea and then the parts in the east where Russia has been exerting influence, these are places where, you know, there may be kind of more of a historically uh, or even now a stronger connection you know, to Russia or identifying as Russian. We should note that polling data out of Ukraine seems to say that most Ukrainians don't want to be part of Russia. But putting that aside for a second, there has been this longer-term ambition by Vladimir Putin. 
Practically speaking, I think he didn't face a ton of resistance. He didn't really face military resistance when he did this. Now, there were sanctions. There were tough sanctions. There was increased U.S. military support to Ukraine to include weapons and intelligence support. That has continued. That continued during the Obama administration. It continued through the Trump years. Famously, there were some questions about whether or not the United States would continue that commitment, which kind of led to an impeachment. Um, But nevertheless, (laughs) it has been U.S. policy to support them. But it has not been U.S. policy to put boots on the ground in Ukraine. The world knows that. Putin knows that the world knows that. And he hasn't really faced more significant consequences. So this is all part of the backdrop as he calculates whether or not he's willing to take that risk and go in again and take more Ukrainian territory. Does he think the consequences will be worse, about the same? Can he deal with worse? Those are the questions I think that he's asking and U.S. officials are trying to to determine. What do you think are the implications here for the rest of the world? Um, And I don't want to pretend like one country invading a whole other country isn't in and of itself a potentially shocking act and something that would be world changing. But for the safety of everyone else, like what would something like this do? The broader implications here, and we can think about this first, perhaps in the terms of Europeans and the United States, is what an invasion of Ukraine would do to potentially undermine U.S. and European alliances, these transatlantic alliances. Now, again, Ukraine is not a member of NATO, but NATO is kind of, you know, the the superstructure of transatlantic security since the end of the Second World War. We think of these countries in Europe and the United States as being allies, as being democratically oriented, more towards the West. Um, This could shake that resolve. And I think it already is, frankly. I mean, when I talk to people in government, uh, both here and overseas, about whether or not they think that, you know, NATO countries would come to the rescue if Russia invaded a NATO member, there's some people pause over that. I mean, the, the, you don't hear a universal response of, yes, no questions asked. Mm-hmm. Attack on one is an attack on all. That is the nature of NATO. So there's this question about undermining alliances, confidence in the U.S., in resolve. Putin is constantly trying to drive wedges between the United States and its European allies, notably the Germans. And these countries, of course, are dependent on natural gas from Russia. It is winter. Temperatures are dropping. So this all factors into it. There's also another way that this this works, you know, from, from the U.S. perspective, though, as well. I think that officials here look at Vladimir Putin's aggression and think that if we don't stop him now, if we don't repel him and deter him, there's going to be a message that is received in Beijing where Hmm. the Chinese authorities are going to start to feel, okay, well, if Vladimir Putin can get away with this in Ukraine, can we get away with this in Taiwan? That's interesting. That that, that There's a sense that we might be missing this opportunity to draw a red line or to essentially tell other people that this is something that the U.S. might be willing to tolerate. That's right. So these things are all in play. These are kind of the global stakes that we're thinking about here when we're talking about military action at this one specific place on the globe that, you know, probably many Americans have never heard of, couldn't find on a map. The implications Hmm. for all of the, you know, for global security is pretty profound. uh, And we'll start getting answers to that in the coming days and weeks, I think. I also think that the the question that I have been thinking about a lot since this news came out is the the limits of soft power that the U.S. and President Biden can talk a big game about how they are going to stand in opposition to Putin, to China and stand in strength. But when push comes to shove, like what are what are the limits of that? Like, can they actually 
be in opposition to these leaders when it seems like the only levers that they're willing to pull on are soft power, like extremely toothless kind of measures. Yeah, I mean, I guess we should say too, I mean, you know, the sanctions do take a bite out of people. The question is, do they take enough bite out of Vladimir Putin uh, to make him stop? I mean, Mm -hmm. so much of the question of U.S. relations with Russia do come down to the leader of Russia. uh, And 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 how how much much does Putin care about what other people are experiencing in this country, right? That's right. I mean, you know, I mean, to be clear, you know, Vladimir Putin has a domestic constituency that he has to appeal to. It's not to say that the Russian people would just tolerate endless wars uh, and, you know, him bankrupting the country. But he has a story to tell and a vision about Russia. And part of that is, you know, a Russia that stands up to the West, that protects its territorial integrity. So he has that kind of on the line right now. But what you're really getting at here is this broader question of, like, what does deterrence mean right now Hmm. towards Russia? And it seems like even though the sanctions have had some appreciable effects— it might not be enough to deter what it is that everyone is trying to avoid here, which is an invasion of Ukraine. And you know, and not to get ahead of ourselves here and to kind of catastrophize this, but you can see from history, right, particularly, you know, in more recent history, how situations escalate. And a real concern here is that if a shooting war really develops in Ukraine and it pulls more people in, you know, Russia is a nuclear armed power. Russia is an aggressive country, and when there is a war, the possibilities for miscommunication and for escalation are very, very high. So we have to be keeping that in mind, and certainly, you know, our military leaders and intelligence leaders are doing that. But this all gets at this kind of basic question of how far is Putin willing to go? What does it take to deter him? I think that part of the goal of this conference today between President Biden and President Putin is in part for the U.S. not just to get across its message of what its red lines are, and that's, you know, a term that has a fairly colored history, if you will, in recent foreign policy, but to try and understand, is there something the United States could do to accommodate Russia and to get Putin to back down? He's going to have to have some way to save face. It may not be easy. The answers aren't entirely obvious. But I I think that part of the goal of this conference today is for the two leaders to talk to each other in the U.S. to maybe come away with some sense of what could they do to get Putin to back away. Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security for The Post. This story was produced by Rennie Svernoski. After the break, we'll talk about another diplomatic high-wire act for the U.S. government. What to do about the Winter Olympics in China. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. For months, there's been a lot of whispers and concerns about how the United States was going to handle the Beijing Olympics. 
That's sports reporter Rick Mace. And by the way, yes, the Olympics are happening again in just two months. And because the games are happening in China, it has been this complicated thing for the U.S. to navigate. On Monday, White House spokesperson Jen Psaki came out and finally told us exactly what the administration had planned. A diplomatic boycott that would keep all dignitaries, all U.S. leaders at home during the Beijing Games. The athletes on Team USA have our full support. We will be behind them 100% as we cheer them on from home. We will not be contributing to the fanfare of the games. U.S. diplomatic or official representation would treat these games as business as usual in the face of the PRC's egregious human rights abuses and atrocities in Xinjiang. And we simply can't do that. The Biden administration is boycotting the Olympics because of China's treatment of its minority populations, especially the Chinese Muslim Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Rick says that the White House has had concerns over the Chinese government's human rights abuses for a while. But what's taken a long time to figure out is what exactly to do about it. There's been all kinds of different options they've considered. We've heard from Congress, people wanting to to move the Olympics, people wanting the athletes to sit out the Olympics entirely. And really, it was hard to find a palatable thing that everyone would agree to. One huge concern is you've had athletes training their entire lives for these Olympic Games. Skiers, snowboarders, hockey players. Do you deprive them the opportunity to compete, to have their one shot at glory, to have their one chance to to reach it to the medal stand? So if you boycotted the Olympics entirely and kept athletes at home, they would never have that opportunity. The International Olympic Committee says that it respects the U.S.'s decision to boycott and that, quote, the presence of government officials and diplomats is a purely political decision for each government. And in fact, there is a long history of political boycotts at the Olympics. It seems like every Olympics comes with some kind of political ramifications. If you think back to 1936 when Germany was hosting the Summer Games, or 1968 as the civil rights movement was sweeping through the nation and Black athletes were considering skipping the Mexico City Olympics, or perhaps most famously the 1980 Olympics, when the United States decided not to send athletes to the Moscow Summer Games, upset that Russia had invaded Afghanistan. And of course, that was followed four years later by Russia deciding to boycott the 1984 uh, Los Angeles Summer Games. So it's, it's always been hard to separate politics from sport, no matter how hard Olympic officials try. Has there been any response from China on this? And also, does China care if other countries' <laughs> diplomats show up to their Olympics or not? Yeah, China was a little bit hesitant to talk about this, um, you know, when it was just kind of in the planning stages or it was just kind of a United States rumor. But since the White House announced it on Monday, they have been a little bit more more vocal Those politicians who clamor to boycott for political self-interest are showing off and hyping things up. And here we can hear from a spokesperson from the Chinese government speaking through a translator telling us exactly what they thought of the United States move. No one cares whether they come or not. What we're kind of hearing so far is China saying, you know what, you you can't boycott these Olympics. We haven't even invited you to attend. Um, The the idea of (laughs) um, foreign leaders and dignitaries, uh, you know, attending the Olympics, you know, it is kind of an invitation-only event. And technically speaking, you know, the President Biden and and no other U.S. officials maybe have received the the evite quite yet. It does strike a little bit of a blow to China, you know. Hosting the Olympics is a big deal. It's a big chance to kind of put your foot forward on the global stage and and share, uh, you know, your culture, your people, your policies with the world. And the United States is kind of snubbing them. And, um, you know, it does seem like there are some hurt feelings, at least based on some of the early comments. I think, you know, you you very smartly brought up these situations from the past where the U.S. has boycotted Olympics and I think maybe made more of an impact. But I wonder if the U.S. on the global stage 
in 2021 doesn't have the kind of standing as it used to or isn't really on a moral high ground where it can run around and tell other countries what they're doing wrong or not show up to their Olympics and think that that's going to make some kind of powerful statement. Yeah, I would say this administration certainly isn't the first that's really struggled with the China question and and what's the best way to approach them. You know, it's a, it's a very fraught, tense relationship. So choosing the right thing, choosing the way to send a message, to, to discipline or punish while also maintaining some form of relationship, it's a balancing act that, that, that we're seeing. Rick Mace is a sports reporter for The Post. The story was produced by Alexis Diao. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is mixed by Ted Muldoon and edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.